0: Hey everyone, welcome to An Event for Life with Brad Cox and Shane Buzzer. I'm Brad. And I'm Shane. An Event for Life is the podcast where we take you on a journey through eventful lives of inspirational event industry leaders from around the
1: world. That's right. We'll be sharing their stories, impact and insight into the complex world of events. So if you like these stories, don't forget to like, subscribe and share with your mates. This is An Event for Life. Good morning Buzz, how are you mate? I'm good Brad, how are you doing? Yeah, very very well. What's happening? Oh, it's all it's Christmas party season, right? Oh, it's all happening. I'm
0: still recovering from the Blue Event Productions one last week.
1: It was a good one.
0: Oh, good. I can't remember half of it.
1: So, <laughs> no, it was we, a good day. We had fun. It was it, Beautiful day too, compared Beautiful to some day. of the, the shitty weather we've had. Yep. No, we had a nice sunny day. We we did all the things. Really, we were on a, what did we do? We went a we boat, boat to start with golf
0: or we at heartbreaker. Yeah, and we were, golf's a bit of a exaggeration, I think. So yeah. we were playing mini golf. <laughs> Holy moly! Yeah, you're right. It was it was
1: a, a social mini golf. Yeah. yeah, that
0: ended up at your place till whatever hour of the evening it was. It, yeah. It was fun. It was fun. It yeah. is a good time, isn't it? its a Good time. And, and, and,
1: and now we're going to go to the wholesome period where you're going, You're off to. You do carols, don't you? I do do carols.
0: Yeah, yeah. we uh, do the family uh, carols adventure. So, which is uh, which is always fun. So, my mother in law sings in the choir. Funnily enough, so Jesus. that's uh, that's where it all started. Wow. And uh, it happens to be a wife's birthday on that day. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's us. And then. You know, well, this—it's uh, just that time of year. Of course, it is. Everyone's up and about, and yeah. you're dealing with a hangover one day, and then you're excited the next day. And I've still got Christmas shopping to do, and it's, uh, yep, and uh, and we're trying to wind up uh, the work side of things as well, of course. So. Yeah, I've seen you're out of
1: office on. Yeah, it's on. Yeah. So it's it's on. <laughs> you but got it's in a, early. Yeah. Oh, I
0: did. Well, it's only a couple of days, but I'm still working, which is a crazy thing. So, uh, and funnily enough, I was actually out in the Yarra Valley yesterday, and uh, I was doing a gin making class. Yeah, you've, you've
1: clocked off. You're one of those, aren't you? No, you, I haven't. You're out. Yeah. But
0: the the crazy thing about what I do in particular is like we work on stuff all year round in that consulting space and everyone starts looking, they see the next calendar year pop up, 2024, and then everyone's like, oh, I better put into place all those things we've been talking about. They've got to be ready for the 1st of January. So it's actually a bit of a, a sprint to the finish line, but uh, no, that's all good. What about yourself? Are you taking a
1: break? No, no, I'm, I'm working through, of uh, which which is fine. Um, I don't mind doing that. We've got a few things next week, the week after, but uh, I'll get into it next year, but I've got something Planned for February So my time will come
0: Mm, Oh look out there yeah. you go. So, well, yeah. look, watch this space. It is a bit of watch this space, and look, this is our uh, our last podcast of 2023. So, uh, there's some big things happening next year, which we'll keep on the down low for now. But uh, stay tuned, and uh, you you'll see what's in in store for us. But uh, hey, let's talk about today. Um, today's guest has carved out her niche and skills across the industry for over 15 years, working her way from a junior coordinator to one of the most demanding jobs in the industry, from internal at football clubs to venues, agency side, government, and major public events and organisations, to now being the Operations Director for Cricket Australia's Big Bash League, as well as a University Lecturer at Deakin University. There is not much she hasn't done carving out her own path. She's always been a hard worker with a determination to succeed. Would you please welcome Belinda Key. Welcome, Belle.
2: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm not used to having a microphone right up in my grill, um, but I'm used to just sitting around uh, talking shit with you guys. So it does feel a bit weird to be here in front of a microphone, but excited to uh, see what we explore over the next period of time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Now, Bell, I'm going to show my age a bit, but yeah. I can vividly remember your start at Melbourne Park, mm-hmm. and, and that's where we first met. You were bright-eyed, clipboard in hand, ready to go as we uh, started to throw all the curveballs uh, and questions at you. Uh, not everyone has that sparkle in, in their eye, but you did from the outset, uh, and you always had that sort of eagerness to learn and, and most importantly, make a difference in, in what you do. But where did your love of events initially start from?
2: Yeah, I also remember that time, Brad, and I don't know that I've ever told you this, but I don't know that people have ever intimidated me the way that you did at that first Australian Open event that we did. My Um, apologies. (laughs) (laughs) It's intense, isn't it? It can be a little intense intense at times, but you were so great at what you were doing and I was just like, how do I even get to that level? Um, So that was a really great way for me to start my career and have an exposure to big large scale events and and experts in the industry. I think for me, my love of events started with sport. I I wanted to be a sports journalist initially. And then post uni, I decided I didn't want to write about things that, um, you know, other people wanted me to write about. And I had a mate that said, actually, you, you organise the formal, you organise the deb after party, you do everything at school. Have you thought about events? And I was like, oh, I can, I can do that for 12 months and then I'll swap degrees. And very luckily got into a, an events course and actually fell in love with events. And I love the organisation. I love the people side of it. I love being able to build something and to to see it come to life from an idea that you've had to then working through all the different elements to then kind of seeing the finished product and and being able to impact other people with what you create. I think for me, that's the adrenaline rush in what we do. And yeah, I think I've always loved events. I was really lucky that I started at Melbourne Park and I probably didn't realise how much that impacted me until after I left Melbourne Park when I realised that you know I was exposed day to day with the very best in the industry, with some of the biggest events in the industry, but I learnt at that level. So I didn't know any difference. So taking that once I left Melbourne Park um, has really helped me in my career.
1: I think we can all attest to that having been in that environment and at the same time at one point the three of us very briefly but um you mentioned a course we're we're Where did you do the course?
2: Yeah, so I actually started at VU. Uh, So I studied sports administration and event management. I probably went in on the sports side, but after four years, definitely came out more on the event side of things. And by the end of the four years, I wasn't sure that I wanted to run sports events. I just wanted to run events, um, but obviously had a sports degree and a love of sports. So kind of fell into a role with um, the Eastern Rangers out in the old... uh, uh, NAB Cup. Um, so yeah, did a placement there and sort of fell in love with that and, and met some contacts and sort of kept exploring that sports event side of things. Isn't that
0: funny on the mm. university side? And I mean, if we were to fast forward, you're now lecturing at Deakin Uni in particular, but you know, VU, I did exactly the same course, but went in from the music side of things, because mm-hmm. I thought that's where I wanted to be and it ended up in the event side of things. But it was the placement that sort of Uh, you know, started the career because you had to do it as part of that course and you had to get your hours up and lo and behold, you know, it was all about opportunity and and your testament to that as well. You go into sport and you come out with events and it's it's all that experience that you get on that through that little journey uh, way back then.
1: So you said it was a placement. What did they have you doing? Because I guess, you know, for – from where you are now, obviously, you know, you're a bit of a little bull. You would have gone in and said, <laughs> all right, what are we doing here? So what were you don't doing I don't know what then? you're
2: talking about, Buzzer. Um, <laughs> so I did go in. I was helping sort of from an admin side of things. I started running their media days, uh, brown low Calcutta's. I didn't even know what a brown low Calcutta was. Uh, started running those sorts of things. <laughs> piss Presentation nice, Yeah, I going to say, can you give the, give them the <laughs>
0: listener like the 30 seconds on what that is, dare I say? Uh,
2: lots of uh, betting, I guess, on, uh, on the brown low and what was happening, but yeah. Um, yeah, it was really interesting to kind of be on the peripheral of, of AFL teams and seeing scouts and doing that side of things as well. And um, yeah, I think I was just running sort of their uh, websites and their events, and I started writing articles, uh, match day reports, and then I was sort of published in the general newspaper about my match reports, and I was kind of keeping that sports journalist side open a little bit. I didn't want to close the door to that completely. Um, and I loved my time there. And at the end of the placement, they ended up um, putting me on a casual contract. And I think I worked there for another 12 months or so. Um, and it was great. I loved it. It was full-time uni, part-time work and part-time out at Eastern Ranges. But I think that's where my love of yeah working at a fast pace and having a lot of different things going on really started.
0: And, and was that the catalyst to then say, okay, sports journalism, not for me, even though you loved it so much, and I want to pursue the event stuff, or where did you make that decision that this is the way I want to go?
2: I probably realized that uh, my skill set and my talent was more aligned to events than than sports management. Um, and obviously sort of where journalism is in the industry at the moment, you know, you could kind of see that, Very few people were going to get to the top of of sports journalism. And I I wanted to make sure that I could still love sport and go and enjoy sport. And so that event side for me sort of just kept developing. Um, After I was at Eastern Rangers, I actually got a job working at a local government uh, in pure events, not sport. And I was like, this is actually for me, this is what I want to do. And after 12 months at a local government, Yeah, I learned some more pure event skills and and that was really interesting.
0: What were some of the events you were doing for them? That was Dandenong City Council, is that correct? That is correct, yeah. So
2: um, I lived in the the council, so it was really great, nice and easy, close to home. Um, But it was a full-time job while I was also studying full-time at uni. Um, and I was doing mayor balls and Australia Day functions and uh, helping people in the community run their events. So City of Greater Dandenong have a a large population where English isn't their first language. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so trying to explain to somebody that, you know, potentially what they did overseas back in their home country versus what a council needs from a risk management point of view or a ask about food, that. health <laughs> yeah, and safety point of view yeah. or, a, you know, um, making sure that the council could approve these big events. And some of these events like Diwali festivals had ten or 15,000 people yeah, turn yeah. up and were run by community groups who had no experience or no education necessarily in the formal process of events. So my job was really to help them run their events and show them what needs to happen from a legal standpoint and a council standpoint um, to get their event off the ground.
1: Did you find, Belle, that going from uni, Eastern Ranges to then going into, I guess, a a government environment was I guess, a, a big 12 months from a learning perspective in compliance and, and the admin and compliance elements that are needed. Was that a big part of that that experience there?
2: Absolutely. I think when you think about sports clubs, particularly sort of under 18 footy clubs, compliance isn't necessarily high on their agenda. It's more about just getting things done, whereas going into a council environment, um, particularly from a risk point of view, an insurance point of view, public safety point of view, I really learnt a lot. And um, mm. And there's a, a group called LG Pro um, who works a lot with local governments. And I was able to do a lot of training through that and meet some great people through that that really helped educate me in that area. And, you know, I'm a big fan of risk management now. I'm a, probably a risk management nufty and that's probably where that side started in terms of understanding process and documentation. And what do the lawyers need and, and what do the insurance companies need? And yeah, it was a, a real eye opening experience.
1: What what was the risk management plan like for the Calcutta event? <laughs> <laughs> Non-existent
2: I'd say. Yeah, I don't even think that's an RSA to be fair, but it was, um, yeah, more, more about getting as many people in as possible and fundraising versus yeah. councils, yeah. obviously, you know, that brand protection side yeah. of things. Um, yeah, it was really interesting.
0: And how much, you're at uni at that time, like you said, you're studying full-time, you're working full-time. How much of the study um, and the theory-based stuff from the from the university are you applying to the job and how much are you learning on the job? And, you know, we talk about how much is learnt as you develop and, you know, you're relatively young, you know, you've got a bit of experience but not that much and you've got a lot of responsibilities you just alluded to. How much are you tiptoeing between the two of them um, and how have they progressed into where you are now?
2: Yeah, I, um, I, I think it's actually really interesting when you're learning at the same time that you're getting that hands-on experience. I think... Being able to understand the theory a bit more and to apply it and actually understand why things are the way that they are was hugely beneficial to me. I think we've all done uni courses. We probably forget a lot of it once we walk out the door, so the opportunity to be able to take the theory and apply it at the time was really um, beneficial to me. Um, And I was also able to take that experience back into the classroom and ask more detailed questions and, and kind of push the boundary a little bit further and have a bit more of an understanding of what I wanted to learn rather than just putting the education experience on the teachers and absorbing what they teach us, I was able to be like, okay, but what about this? And how do I learn more about this? And why aren't we learning about X, Y, and Z? Um, and it was really a culmination of that industry experience and that education. And I take that into what I do at Deacon now. And I think that's really, really important. There's a lot of things at uni that you can forget about, but what are the key things you need to learn? And it's about setting you up with the right skills to go and get um, the theory, rather than being able to remember every piece of theory. Yeah, you
1: mentioned theory, and I was going to say there's the theory versus practical, which is so important, and something, Brad. You know, I preach all the time um, that it's just so important to have that practical mindset with the th- with the advantage of the, the the theory that's there. But did you find that uh, as Brad asked, doing both helped to really balance that out and, and then get out on the other side with that experience where you could take on a Melbourne Park job of having both yeah. the theor- theoretical and
0: practical. Uh, I think the just to add to that too, the important thing is the employer – Behind that as well. So we talk about you know obviously your theory and the practical, but you know the fact that you've got an employer that's backing you to to do the theory and have the university stuff, and not just say, hey, don't worry about it. You got a job now, and you don't really need it, and you'll be right here, and away you go, because you don't have to have the degree.
2: Yeah, I, I think um, the council were really supportive. Obviously, when I got to Melbourne Park, they were really supportive. I did toss up early on when I was at Melbourne Park on whether I don't finish my last year of uni. Um, I was kind of at three years, I'd been working full-time for two of those. So you are
1: still doing the course when you went to Melbourne Park Correct, as well? Correct. Yeah. Wow. So
2: okay. um, funny story, uh, a lecturer by the name of Greg Dingle, who used to be at VU, I don't think he's there anymore. Um, my final year placement, I had to do 175 hours. I was working oh. at the council. I had a part-time job at a news agency and I was studying full-time um, and I sought permission to do my placement at the council and they said, no, you have to pick somewhere you don't currently work. And I remember like absolutely cracking the sads, coming home, (laughs) being like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, isn't the point of going to, you need to get a job. And um, he held pretty tight that I couldn't do it at the council. Um, And so I remember going home, I was living at home at the time, slammed my door and I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to volunteer for 175 hours and take time out of my paid job and time away from my full-time study where do I want to go and get experience? I don't want to just tick a box. Um, And I spent the night thinking about it. And I was like, if I could work anywhere in this industry, where do I want to go? And Melbourne Park was the the top of the list. And so the next day, as you said, I had a bit of a sparkle in my eye. And I was like, (laughs) I'm going to call these people and they're going to hire me. And I, I spoke to HR and they're like, oh, we actually don't take Placement students, uh, but thanks for your interest. And I remember like throwing the phone and being like, "This is shit." What um, a lot of slamming doors <laughs> and throwing yeah, there is. Very early days here,
1: so <laughs> this is painting a picture. There. <laughs> it's not like that anymore. No, so. Not
2: like that anymore. So I remember, yeah, being really devastated. And, and probably 48 hours later, I got a call back from the lady in HR, and, and she's like, "Look, we don't take placement students, but I'm really interested in in how you presented yourself and what you've done and we've got this system called EBMS, uh, we need some data, um, yep. you know, put in, are you interested in, in data entry? And in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm running all of these big events, 10 15,000 people for a council, and you want me to volunteer to put data into a system? And I was like, no, nope, you need to be around the right people, you need to take the opportunity. And so I um, I agreed to it. I started a week later um, and, you know, that's where I met you guys. Um, but I just got involved in everything I possibly could. And um, I was lucky at the time that a, a couple of people had left that team that I was working in, in the functions team. Uh, and again, I just put my hand up for everything and I worked for everything. And if there was an opportunity, I would go and do it. And I probably spent you know, I did the 175 hours very quickly uh, and by December that offered me a full-time job uh, at Melbourne Park. And so i just finished my degree and I walked into a full-time role yeah, at well, Melbourne Park. I think
0: the important thing is they're just taking the opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like whatever is presented to you, doesn't matter how minuscule it is. I mean, I was the same. I mean, I had a degree as a as a chartered accountant, like I was four years into accounting and then all of a sudden I'm in events and I'm doing the same as you, you're volunteering on my 175 hours. I can remember filling out the Excel spreadsheet, putting translating business cards, you know, names, phone numbers, email addresses into this spreadsheet data entry going, what am I doing? So, but, it was a way in. Mm-hmm. So, and you knew that wasn't the end game, but you just have to take the opportunity. So to well, anybody- we're, we're not above anything. No, Correct. you're not. No. So, and it's and hard work. that doesn't work. change the longer no, that exactly. you're in the no. industry, yeah. right? No, hundred percent. So I guess at Melbourne Park in particular, you, you move into that space and okay, now you've got a full-time job. And are you going, oh, I like this. This is where I want to be. I'm in venue land now. I've gone from council. I've gone from football club to council. Now I'm in venues. Is that- Are you starting to find your feet in terms of what you like in the industry? How are you navigating that in your own career and in your own mind is to go, oh, where am I actually going to fit in here? So
2: yeah, I, I loved the adrenaline rush. I loved the work ethic. I loved the fact that you have to work hard to create something. That's very addictive to me. Um, I loved the people that were around as well. And so I found like I'd met my people and I'd found my place in the industry, but You know, I was pretty ambitious and I knew I didn't want to stay in an admin role too long, um, particularly being what I've done before. And um, I remember just trying to tap everyone on the shoulder and have a coffee with anyone I could meet and and understand how those that were 5, 10, 15 years ahead of me, how they got to where they were and how they go about it. I remember, you know, Josh Anderson, who's now at Adelaide Oval or Daniel Andrews, who's now with the Queensland government and just following them around like a sick puppy sometimes to work out how they did what they did, how, what do they do? What does their day look like? And what can I learn from how they go about it? And I probably spent maybe 10% of my week actively going and trying to shadow other people and and learn their skill set and learn their mannerisms and learn how they went about it, because I knew that's where I wanted to go and I wanted to follow in their footsteps. And You know, sure, I want to be the first me, but they are the people that are in the industry, leading the industry. And I was like, what can I learn from them while I'm around them?
1: Um, You mentioned work ethic, which you clearly had from day dot, but two awesome women who you worked with, Kathy Ashton Mm -hmm. and Amanda Walker, Mm -hmm. their work ethic, you know, that probably rubbed off on you as well in the context of not just work ethic, but how you know, have that fierceness in you to, to achieve and, and make a difference with your clients, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I probably didn't realise it enough at the time, but we had such a strong female team at Melbourne Park in that functions team. And 100%. again mm. when when you start out you, you don't notice those sorts of things and particularly being more on the sports side of things in the last decade to see fierce women like Kathy and Steph Hopton and, and Walkie yeah. um and how protective they are of their people but how much they care about what they do um, and I learned a lot about taking pride in what you do and not just ticking boxes and building lifelong connections and how important your reputation is and in this industry it's not about being perfect at everything that you do because we all make mistakes um, but it's about having that integrity and people you know, trusting what you're going to do for them and, and having faith in in what you're going to do. And I learn a lot about that from Kathy and Steph and Amanda.
1: Yeah, I left Steph out who I love. I love Steph. <laughs> so sorry, Steph, if you're listening. But uh, no, th- yeah. those three who we've talked about, like just absolute beasts and superstars of the industry. So, yeah, you you, did, you landed yourself pretty well as far as, you know, being in the same room as them. Correct. Well, what did you think of corporate events, you know, particularly in that, in that team and in that role you're
0: in versus the sporting background and I guess that conflict in some ways? They... They complement each other in in certain aspects, but they're also very different. So, did you kind of go, oh, I don't know about this corporate stuff, or oh, I really like this, and or did you just see it as more experience and another avenue to try something new?
2: Yeah, when I was in uh, the role at Melbourne Park, I loved corporate events. I loved putting on you know post show parties, pre show yep. parties. I loved doing the music side of things, but then also being able to do a conference dinner or or an expo. I learned a lot running expos. Um, And I really enjoyed that corporate side of things. And I thought I'd found my space there. I really enjoyed it. And then um, I kind of dabbled a little bit in more large scale event operations. I shadowed the arenas team a lot. And I was like, actually, I think I want to do these really big public events Um, I didn't realise there was probably more money in corporate events than than public (laughs) events in terms of budgets that you can spend. But um, I really, yeah, liked the public facing large scale element of operations. And so I started to drift more into that side and um, yeah, away from corporate events. And I think now sort of being 15, 18 years in the industry, I think I'm very much cemented in that large scale event operations more so than the the corporate hospitality side of things.
0: Well, uh, about a month after Buzz started working in Melbourne Park, you uh, you'd had enough, and I don't blame you for that. I mean, you know, <laughs> sorry, you look it at was it definitely a something go, he said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you and you decide to move on, but you, you kind of go down a bit of a different path, and, and you and you move to Max Events, you know, and on an agency side, but with a real focus on sporting events, um, and, and navigating, I guess, out of Melbourne land and, and your little bubble down here in some ways that we're all part of, but going nationally in particular what was the attraction to move from venues to agency side and what were some of the challenges you faced in doing so
2: yeah, I got to a point at Melbourne Park where I'd been there maybe two and a half years, and and as I said, I really wanted to move into that. And I pissed you off, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. As a sugar starter, it and yet. I was like, I need yeah, to leave. That's but um, no, there was a, I really wanted to move into the Arenas team, and at that time, nobody had moved from functions to Arenas. It was very much like your corporate hospitality, yeah. and we do the big events, and um, I just couldn't see a way where I could break that barrier down. So I knew I had to leave and try something different um, and build that side of my skill set. And I saw the role with Max Events and, you know, I knew the venues really well. And Max Events uh, work with three of the four tenant clubs at Amy Park. I knew the Amy Park team really well. Um, So I thought I could bring a lot to Max Events in terms of understanding how the venues operate, having strong relationships with the venue um, and, and sort of, yeah, learning more about sporting operations, but bringing a very venue-centric mindset to what I did. So jumped at that opportunity, um, was thrown in the deep end. I remember my very first match day and it was raining and cold and wintry. And I was like, whose idea was it to leave corporate (laughs) events to to run match day? Um, But absolutely loved it. Loved the sports presentation side of things. I didn't really know a lot about sports presentation at that point in my career. Um, Max events weren't doing a lot of sports presentation at that point. They were sort of doing more match operations and, and events with Melbourne Victory, like Victory and Business. Um, and then we sort of started to build that together uh, with Noda, the owner, around, you know, we need to diversify as a business. We need to start going down this sports presentation side of things. And so we really kind of built it together without knowing a lot about, um, yeah, how to sort of do that. And again, every time that I have an opportunity, I sort of just try and jump at it and, and have a crack and give it a go. And I loved it.
1: Was it a big team? At the time?
2: It was not a big team. I think when I started at Max Events, there were maybe three or four of us. Wow. And
1: the reason I ask is because you've gone from Melbourne Park where there's just people everywhere. So many departments and so many, I guess, you know, shoulders to lean on to this now small agency.
2: Yep. Um, how did
1: you adapt to that?
2: It was really interesting going from what is a corporation and a beast of an organization with a lot of process and documentation and HR to a sole owner who, you know, I love nodes and he's so great at what he does, but no HR, no systems or processes, um, you know, just trying to do the best we can for the clients that we have and having a really small and passionate team. And I think that probably took me a little while to get my head around. And I remember doing an event down at um, UTAS Stadium in Launceston and I just come from what's arguably the best venue in the country in Rod Laver Arena and process and and down to Utah's Stadium and <laughs> I remember there <laughs> like was like a, a country a town correct um, and I love <laughs> the too. team down at Utah's yep. um, but I remember my first A League game down there and there were flares in the crowd and I asked the security guard where uh, the fire extinguisher was and they couldn't tell me and I was like the, the stand is on fire where's the fire extinguisher. And I reckon I asked twelve people, and wow. no one could tell Holy me. And I remember that about
1: twelve just in this warehouse.
2: <laughs> yeah, the risk side of me was like, "What have I done? I've just gone from, again, Melbourne Park, who who's so good at this sort of thing, to being responsible where I don't ha- necessarily have those guardrails around me." And again, it was an opportunity for me to be like, "Well, you could be really overwhelmed by this, or." you could take the knowledge that you learnt at Melbourne Park and you could start applying that to other venues like UTAS. And um, shortly after that, I rewrote their security plans and, and kind of their customer service plans, et cetera, because I knew what it should be like. <coughs> and then I could say that it wasn't like that. So again, that was for me probably when a light bulb went off that actually you learnt more than you thought you did when you were at Melbourne Park. And You know, I wasn't that senior when I was at Melbourne Park, right, but I learnt at such a high level and where things should be that I was then able to take that with me when I went to other venues and and other organisations.
0: Were you surprised with the way agencies work particularly small business and small agencies and some of those other venues given what your experience was at Melbourne Park where you're like oh my god I can't believe people operate like this and I guess that's an opportunity for you to, to make a difference in in those say, teams. It may change which yeah, you're great at. So, absolutely yeah. but uh, you know it's it can be it cannot be for everyone. Yeah. You know, some people will see that and go, I just can't deal with this. I need the systems and the processes and they're not prepared to do the hard work and go, well, I'll build them myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just can't. I'll go back into big
1: corporate
2: land. Yeah. I think, you know, agency life, I think we've all done agency life at a period of time and I'd recommend everyone have a crack at agency yep. life. Some and people
1: should even start one. Right? <laughs> <pretty cool. laughs> um, you got any jobs going. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
2: um, but for me, like the passion of the people around me and – you know, nota in particular and to see what he'd done before and how much he deeply cared about his relationships with yep. his stakeholders and that if Melbourne Victory called at three o'clock in the morning, he would still take that call. Um, and he took such pride in what he did and the hours were intense. Mm. Like let's not kid ourselves around here. Agency yep. life in events is a lot and you guys yep. know that better than anyone else. Um and you've got to be really committed to the cause and you need to love what you do. Um, and it can burn a lot of people out, 100%. but I... Was it becomes very
0: personal. Yeah. You know? oh, it's, yes. it's not a corporate job, but as in, and not to say Melbourne Park, you didn't work hard, you did your 15 hour days, probably longer and big stints, but... When You're in agency land and it's all on the line,
2: correct? <laughs> for everybody,
0: yeah. Um, there's another level of the, the accountability of is more
1: oh, honed in,
2: absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And we spoke of earlier, like your reputation is yeah. so important, yeah. right? And when you are in agency land, it's your reputation and it's yep. you know, it doesn't happen if you don't do it. Yep. And when you work in big organizations, you know, you can kind of hide behind the brand a bit or the product, but. When you are in an agency, it's literally like if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. And there's an ownership to that, and a pride, and a self-satisfaction. And you know, when you get to work with really incredible clients and really believe in what you're building, like that's the magic source in what we do, right?
0: Hundred percent. So, and you know, you're only as good as your last gig. We say it all the time, particularly in agency land, and. It's hard, you know, and it isn't for everybody and um, – but you do learn a different side of things and I guess that's, you know, going from corporate into agency, you, know, you got to be experience both sides of the fence, um, which a lot of people don't do. And I think if you do stay in one lane and you don't do both, then you, you are missing out in some – just to understand it and just the thinking and the way they go about it and what agencies have to go through and how a small team works to deliver for a bigger – Corporate or a bigger... it uh, you
1: broadens your mindset yeah, as absolutely. well. Absolutely, Yeah,
0: yeah. I think definitely. it's been
2: really helpful in the rest of my career when I've now gone, you know, back into bigger companies and yep. I still work with a lot of agencies, right? Um And I think, I'd hope they'd say this about me, but I treat <laughs> them with more respect because yeah. I actually understand more about their everyday and what they go about and how much they how care about my product as much as I do. And I just think... Any kind of exposure that you can have in this industry to different groups, different opportunities, different ways of thinking yeah. is going to make you a better events person. Do you think that's
0: one of the benefits of agency? So if you put your corporate hat on and you go, I'm going to engage an agency, do you think the fact that they are personalized, they care more about the brand, nearly more so than in some cases, people that may work internally because there's so much more on the line?
2: Absolutely. I, I, I'm a big fan of TLA as well. And yep. you know, TLA is probably yep. the biggest agency um, oh,
1: they're up there, yeah. that we
2: have. But you know, my experience with some of those guys mm-hmm. from TLA where they have literally been on the phone with me at 11 o'clock or midnight and we're trying to decide what we're going to do when they are as invested in building the product as I am and they care as much about it. Like there are people in the Cricket Australia office that, you know, I, that wouldn't be on the phone with me at 11 o'clock trying to decide what we're going to do or caring or, or sending me, a you know, an Instagram reel or a LinkedIn post about have you seen this? I think this could be great for us. Um, and they, you know, good agency people always make you feel like they're on your side um, and I think that's, yeah, really important. An
0: extension to the team. You Absolutely. know, is the way we always saw it and it has to be that way. So. Stealing our
1: line, that's a... Uh
0: Oh, sorry. I didn't know, that just, I didn't know you had the, uh, the copyright the on that.
1: No, you're stealing the line that I have stolen from, from uh, pretty yeah, much probably, every other yeah, agency. Right. Yeah. So,
0: well, I guess, you know, it's a good um – a good introduction to the fact that you go back into major events, you know, particularly around the Asian Cup and the Cricket World Cup and you and you start to I guess really in those international events in particular, was that a risk for you, you know, I guess going from big to then small agency to then
1: going back to big? Well that was with VicGov too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So that
2: was a another sideward step and yeah, you know, I've been in my career trying to make sure that I build a really strong foundation and get a lot of different experiences and different inputs and an opportunity came up with uh, what was Sport & Rec Victoria Now Visit Vic and that was probably the biggest step outside my comfort zone and I felt like I'd done um, local government events, but to get into that team and to see how they operate and less operational, less doing on the ground, less, you know, event ops, but more strategic thinking and more relationships and high-level stakeholder engagement and... You know advising ministers and making sure that you know we pass the sniff test and it doesn't end up on the front page of the Herald Sun and on, on an
1: international level, too. The, the, the two events that you focused on, huge from a, a global perspective,
2: massive, particularly the um the ICC uh World yep. Cup as well, like you know, billion people watching that final. Yeah. Um,
1: the Indian crowd alone, huge. as in the TV crowd. We're Massive. Talking there is just, yeah, yeah, but monster. even the
2: diplomatic overlay and how the comms between the different states organize, and you know, the control centers and the commands that they have. That when you're working in an agency or even when you're working in a venue, you might not have exposure to, but you know, down to how the Australian government was bringing people into the country and the visas, and then. Um, you know, the security overlay of what can come into the MCG and what's a human rights issue versus not a human rights issue. And um, there is a ceremonial um, knife called a kirpan, uh, which a lot of uh, Indian people carry. It's a religious item. Now, is that viewed as a weapon? Is that not? Like even Mm. that conversation I had not been privy to before um, so to even, yeah, just be exposed to that government side of major events, the security overlay, the, the reputation of, of the country and, and protecting that was really interesting. Um, with the Asian Cup in particular, I think opening night, it was Australia v Q8 at Amy Park. Huge. They'd spent months and months planning for it. There was two control rooms in case one got taken out. There was, you know, um, Vic Rhodes was sitting next to me and the VVIP bus that was coming from the Hyatt had 15 sheiks on it from different backgrounds um, of which they all didn't necessarily have the same beliefs. They normally all run in their own protection teams. They normally all have armoured vehicles. They normally all have, you know, guns and and weapons to protect them because they're worth billions Mm -hmm. of dollars. And then to come to this event, you need to jump on the bus that the local organising committee has put together, (laughs) all together, and you need to come from the hotel and, you know, to see the experts, whether it was VicPol, whether it was the government, protect that level of VVIP and get them into the venue and, you know, green light corridors the whole way down. And, like, that was something I'd not been exposed to before and I loved it.
1: Was was there representatives from the country, like Q8, you know, and, and other were there representatives of those countries that you were able to kind of nearly shadow in a sense and just see how they looked at these processes?
2: Yeah, it was really interesting to talk about the security overlay mm-hmm. of, you know, A, what can get into the country, what, what does the federal government allow at different levels of VIP, um, but how then the state of Victoria then basically took on the protection of these people like if, if I was that level of VVIP and I'm going to a foreign country, I don't know that I would trust that government to protect me in the way that when you come to a major event here in Australia and you know, I'm a big believer that we're the best in the world at what we do. We have the best stadiums, the best security overlays and the best operators, but that's a lot of control you've got to give up. Um, Our
1: credibility is there though.
2: On a global. Yep. 100%. And, yeah. and to see that was, you know, my, my little event out at the Eastern Rangers versus yeah. <laughs> sitting in a security meeting talking about, um, you know, the risk to what was probably, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of personnel yep. was just incredible.
1: From, from a distance, um, did you look at the Women's World Cup this year? And obviously you weren't involved in it, but did you have some appreciation based on what you had experienced during that time?
2: Absolutely. Um, I... I loved um, watching the Women's World Cup and what I found really interesting and I I wasn't involved, as you said, was when you are co-hosting between two countries, that sounds really great when you want to go and attend an event, (laughs) but the political overlay, the government overlay, the visa overlay, the travelling between countries, the, you know, having to work between Australia and New Zealand where laws might be different or rules might be different or you want to bring these high profile people from around the world into this major event and you want them to come to an opening event in New Zealand and then a semi-final in Australia and trying to make that process as seamless as possible Um, particularly from a media point of view as well right like you women's sports still struggle to get that media cut through you want the global media to have the best time ever when they're in the country and you want to make it as easy as possible from accreditation to hotel bookings to you know liaisons etc Now try and do that between two countries and these people are probably coming from a third country. So when you start to think about all the work that needs to go into that, the organisation, the conversations, the long-term stakeholder engagement, I think that's mind-blowing and I think those that, you know, attended the Matilda's game at Amy Park probably aren't thinking about that level of detail.
0: I'm sure they're not and I don't think a lot of people do. The hundreds of layers... going to these events and not just a major event level, but they certainly, you know, at the pinnacle of what we do and to your point, Belle, of like trying to keep that brand integrity. So it's one event. So, and you've got people spread out all over the place, multiple countries in this, in this case, Mm -hmm. to have the operational processes in place, the consistency in a brand and reputation, consistency in communications, and then to holistically deliver that Mm -hmm. day in, day out is, is so underestimated. Absolutely. Um, I
2: think they did a, a phenomenal yeah, job yeah. to be able to do that. And, you know, the workload that Jane Fernandez and her team put into it is just unbelievable.
0: unbelievable. F- from your experience, how do you deal with that pressure?
2: It's a good question. I, I'm somebody that likes to eat the frog, right? So the harder that it is and the more complex the, the challenge, the more I'm excited about it and I want to get involved. I think... You know, COVID was a a great example of that where I'd never heard of a CHO before, a chief health officer, and then three months later I had them all on speed dial and I was dealing with, um, you know, police commissioners and um, premiers and chief health officers and that excited me. I liked the challenge and I like to back myself in that I will throw 110% at something and I will give it my all. Um, And if I give it my all, I think we're going to put it in a really good position. And, you know, I'm not necessarily the most um, skilled person in the room or the most experienced necessarily, but I know my work ethic will carry me through. And if I have a crack, I know I'll give it my all and I'll be okay with that. And so, yeah, the the bigger the challenge, the bigger the opportunity. I I want that chance to step on the big stage. I'm a big believer in not getting nervous, but, but telling myself that, you know, you're so lucky you're in this position. Not many people get to be in this position, eat the frog and have a crack.
0: Unbelievable. I think it's yeah, another great point. You know, like there's so many lessons that people can take from this. One thing I'm interested in is how you've gone from that work ethic and, and being the doer and the person who does everything and taking everything on to, as you built your career, having teams underneath you and being able to offload some of that work and, and manage those teams rather than do it all yourself.
2: That's probably been the skill that's taking me the longest to learn and, and probably something I still juggle with a little bit. Um, I have been really fortunate that I've had great people around me and, and COVID taught me a lot of lessons. And, you know, one of the things I learned through COVID is I can't do it all um, and you need to be able to delegate and you need to be, be able to bring other people into it. Um, and for me, it was all about communication, being really clear with what you need who can help you, what does your team need. I love working in high-performing teams and I love to have different skill sets around me. Um, Yeah, I love to work with people who see the world a little bit different to me to challenge me and then our skill sets complement each other. And um, as I've progressed through My career and through the ranks, it's been about sharing my knowledge, but equally learning from the people that are also coming through because they have different experience and, you know, different views. And it's not that I've been here longer or that I have more experience. I want to know what you bring to the table. And if you can create an environment where people feel comfortable with voicing their opinion, they're always going to go into bat for you um, and they're always going to be honest with you. So for me, it's been about creating environments where people can be themselves and can bring things to the table. Um, and when you have people around you that you can trust, it's much easier to run high-performing teams and be a part of high-performing teams.
1: Have you ever had an issue with your age?
2: What are you suggesting, that I'm old, buzzer? No, no the actually, opposite. Actually, <laughs> actually
1: the, the opposite. Um, and, and I say this complimentary having worked with you and seen you you know, progress in your career. You're still very young. And so I wonder, having been in those high-level positions, has that ever been an issue? I hope not, but I imagine it would in some cases.
2: Yeah, I think um, early on, you know, I was always very ambitious, and my my ambition was backed up by hard work. Um, but I was I could be annoying, right? Like I wanted to do do the next big thing, and I wanted to be involved and. I probably had to learn over time to to pick my opportunities. Um, but I definitely think there are times in my career where people have underestimated me or overlooked me because I do look probably younger than I am, I sound younger than I am, I have a high pitched voice, you know, I'm five foot two. I don't you know, when you look at me, you don't instantly think, Oh, that's an industry leader. But I think if you work with me and spend time with me, then you realise the value that I bring to the table. So I think the people that have underestimated me are more people that don't know me and are are judging me based on how I look or how I sound. Whereas those that have actually spent time and work with me, I feel like they have a bit more respect. And I, I see this a lot you know, when we're bumping major venues in and out and I'm having to deal with, you know, broadcast crews, etc. So it might be 50, 60 year old men mm-hmm. usually, um, who call me princess or sweetheart, or, you know, I've yeah. been told before, why don't you just go and get the manager and let him come and have a chat to me. Oh, and, yeah. um,
1: it's a, to be honest, the, this is the answer I was kind of anticipating. Um, it's disappointing, but unfortunately that's just the reality of the world sometimes. And, uh, Yeah, I mean, as you say, anyone who has spent any time with you knows that that's complete bullshit and you're able to rise above all that and actually deliver whatever it is that you're in charge of. But if people don't know you and just see you as this five foot two young lady, you probably cop that occasionally. And it's, yeah.
2: Absolutely. And it's not ideal, right? But uh, it used to upset me quite a lot. And, you know, I probably pushed back against it in my early days. But. nowadays it's like why would I spend my time trying to change the opinion of a 56 year old broadcast Mm. coordinator who you know he's just there to do his job he's got a different life to me he's you know under pressure to meet his timelines like I'm not going to change his opinion right and I'd rather focus more on the people that I know and I deal with and and making sure that you know their opinion of me meets how I see myself or all the value that I bring to the table. Those people that I don't know, I'm not going to spend my time. Yeah. I think it's a great mindset, you know,
0: in terms of, and it's not for everybody, but to have that foresight and to have that openness, you know, there's a lot of people that wouldn't do that. They would fight all those battles and there is merit in that as well. Um, But, and I guess it's, it's interesting. You've been at Cricket Australia now for, for eight years, you know, working across big bash league predominantly in operations roles, but what, What was it like walking into a national governing body of a sport, particularly a male-dominated sport eight years ago, compared to what you've seen the organisation change to what it's like now?
2: Yeah, it was really interesting uh, walking into the Big Bash team. I was really lucky to report to a guy called Anthony Everard, who is an industry leader, who is a visionary. He's probably the best boss I've ever had. And He was different to anyone I'd ever come across before and he was all about doing things differently and being gender neutral and we were creating a product that was for mums and kids and every decision that we made was for mums and kids and so when I walked into Cricket Australia my gender wasn't an issue, my experience wasn't an issue, I was part of building something that was different and I actually think walking into Cricket Australia, the, the, the bigger challenge was, you know, this T20 phenomenon versus traditional cricket. That was a bigger day-to-day issue than my gender and and we used a lot of gender-neutral language. You know, we don't say batsmen's, we say batter. So now, even now, nine years later, if someone says batsman, I kind of shiver like, oh, that's the wrong word, don't say that. Um, and so I was fortunate to work with a lot of really strong women at Cricket Australia as well and um, certainly my experience in the first five or six years was, yeah, gender wasn't an issue. In fact, you know, at one point what was known as the fan engagement team, which Anthony Verard went on to lead and covered international events and Big Bash, I think we had something like 85% women. Um, so wow, we probably needed a bit more of a gender balance uh, in the, the other, other dire- yeah, direction. Yeah, and we had really great female gms of our clubs. Fantastic. We had a lot of, you know, senior women in in Australian cricket. So for me that wasn't an issue. In fact, I think now post covid, I actually think it's starting to um yeah, regress a little bit in that that boys' club mentality is starting to seep more into cricket than what it did certainly eight or nine years ago when I started. Do you
0: think there's a reason for that at the moment?
2: I just think it's a, a personnel thing, right? Yep. Um, mm. You know, I think a lot of really great females left the industry off the back of COVID. I think, you know, a change in personnel, we used to have Sarah Styles, who's now the Office of Director of the Director of the Office of Women in Sport. She used to be at Cricket Australia and it just feels like maybe some of those checks and balances aren't there like they were when I started.
1: Like It sounds like, and tell me if I'm wrong, but there was no one coming up from underneath to actually take on or or learn from that. I mean, you're... Probably uh, the contrary to that, yep. but um, is there some reality to that that yeah. there wasn't, that there weren't younger women coming up through the or well, through the the organisation? Yeah,
2: I do think there's you know a lot of really great women up and coming. I think also I'm more senior now than when I was when I started. Right, so the tables that I sit at now, the conversations that I'm in are probably that next level up. So if you look at the low to medium level. Um, staff or managers, a lot of really great females. But now that I'm getting up to that top top echelon and dealing with CEOs and, and chairs and boards and things which are more male dominated, that's probably impacted my view on it as well, because I think we still have a long way to go to break through that barrier at the C-suite level.
0: Do you see yourself uh, now that you're at that table, which is all kudos to to you and sort of carving that path. But do you see a responsibility for yourself to try and help more females in particular get to those tables and, and create that difference?
2: Absolutely. I think there's, you know, imposter syndrome as well, right? Where it's yeah. like, I've just got to this table. I need to prove myself. But it's so important that you're bringing people through with you on your way through. Um, success to me is that the women that come after me didn't have to fight as hard as I did and they can push further and go farther. Um but, yeah, absolutely, I think it's really important to, to have a good group of people around you and, you know, women supporting women. I'm a big believer in that and, and giving opportunities. And, you know, when you're in a room, speak highly of your colleagues um, because you never know the opportunities that can come up.
1: And also ha- also confidence and polish, which is something that you have developed very, very well. But that's important um, to overcome some of those imposter syndromes and especially with women who are sitting in these rooms suddenly and and not quite sure, uh, you know, what to say or how to act. But if you're confident and you're polished in what you're saying and delivering, you'll be fine.
2: Yeah, if you believe in what you're saying, like your opinion is really important and that doesn't matter if you're day one on a job or the most junior person in a room, you bring a different level of experience and insight. So never be afraid to voice your opinion. Um, But I think it's also really important for men to be allies and, this isn't a female issue and it's not about females being necessarily more polished or females pushing to get to the next level. At some point you can be an ally and, and I talk to my uni students about this a lot, right? If how many times have you gone into meetings or even uni assignments and you ask the female in the group to take notes? Yep, that, that's a bias that you have that doesn't need to be there. So when you're in a meeting, don't let the lady at the end of the meeting, no matter how junior or senior, clean up the catering or take the paper cups out. Like that's a bias that that we have all done from time to time. And if you are the female in the room and you do want to help out, ask one of your male colleagues to come in. Or if you're in a meeting um, with a female and you can see that she got cut off or that maybe her voice isn't being heard necessarily, you can very easily, without doing a big show and dance, actually direct the attention back and be like, hey, Belle, sorry, I didn't catch the end of what you were saying. Can you finish that off for us? Or, hey, Belle, I just wanted to pick up what you were saying earlier. I really think that and use your power as a male to open up opportunities and open up the floor. I think that's going to do more for female engagement than, you know, all of us banging on doors and wanting to sit at tables.
1: I think there's people listening to this who are probably clapping in their cars or wherever they're <laughs> listening to because I, uh, so. I think you nailed that valve.
0: Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And it's, it's sometimes very hard, you know, for certainly from our side of the table to be able to communicate that. So, uh, and I think you know, you're a great ambassador uh, for for women uh, in events and women in sport, women in business in general. And I think it's mm. it's a really important thing. And you know, we hope there's more of it moving forward. The management and of stakeholders is important both internally and externally particularly global partners on you know, on international events, um, you know, and they're really focusing on outcomes and objectives. And what are some of the fundamental values, you know, your partners are looking for when they engage with BBL in particular?
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, brand cut through is a big one for us. Um, We have quite a few companies who are Indian based who want to sponsor the Big Bash because they love the IPL and maybe can't afford the IPL so they come to the Big Bash. Um, But trying to articulate how the Big Bash operates or how the sports system in Australia operates and how it's different from India is a real big challenge for us. Um, uh, You know, partners, particularly global partners, they just want to put brands on things where the BBL and the IPL actually exist for different reasons. The BBL is a fan engagement product to drive participation. It's not just purely a commercial outcome. So I think, yeah, the ability to articulate why we exist and our purpose kind of helps drive those conversations with big global brands. Um, big global brands also don't want to hear the excuses. They don't want to get involved in the detail necessarily. They want you to meet their need and they're paying a lot of money for you to meet that need. So um, being able to solve their problems and and over deliver and make them feel important um, is a big part of what we try and do in the Big Bash.
1: And you mentioned uh, like the family values are such a big part of what BBL represents. And the BBL is, I guess, is a cricket tournament disguised as a big family party every night. So Correct. how do you keep the experience fresh for those families and the punters you know, who attend live and even those watching at home because it is an experience at home each night as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think we have a really solid base. Like our our normal match day where there's not a lot, I say not a lot, like our foundation, our, our normal match day is a lot and we invest a lot in it, whether it's pyros, music, um, big screens, event presentation. Most of our clubs are probably spending, you know, between 50 and a hundred thousand dollars in event pres just on a match day. So for us, it's all about making sure that mum and the kids have a really great time. We want them to have a really good solid foundation. So when they think of big bash, they know what they get, but then we also want to surprise and delight. And, and we take a lot of, um, satisfaction and a lot of joy out of surprising and delighting. And that might be, you know, um, putting baked beans and spaghetti on kids at some games. That might be building swimming pools in stadiums. That might be, you know, putting motorcycles on the field of play. We want people to come to our events and be like, wow, I can't believe they did that. An internal facing kind of analogy that we use is that we want to be the Willy Wonka of sport. And while the sport is really important and the cricket's never been better and never been more important the cricket is only one element of the entertainment of a big bash game. Um, So we want you to come and learn about cricket. A lot of our fans aren't traditional cricket fans. So we want mum to feel like she can come and bring the kids to our event. She might not know about cricket and feel like she can ask questions and contribute to the conversation. But equally, we now have kids that have been fans for 10 years who are now Big Bash fans and Rusted On fans and how do we make sure that we're giving them what they need and it's not too bubblegum pop and it's not too cartoony. Um, so trying to find that balance is, you know, a growing pain of where the Big Bash is right now. But, yeah, the Willy Wonka of cricket is something that resonates with me and, that and cool. something yeah. like that, that I love and yep. that also that mindset opens up a lot of things internally, right? So if you are a very serious traditional cricket competition and you're all about the cricket and let's you know just cricket 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 that doesn't give you the opportunity to be innovative or creative or do things differently when I say you know we're the willy wonker of sport it's like cool well we can try this and we can dare to dream and you know it might not land 100% or it might not be right but we can have a crack and we can do things differently and it's, it's that mindset that we try and take into it and And, yeah, surprise and delight our fans and and make sure they keep coming back. I think the last 12 months in particular I think we've really doubled down on music as well. We think that – that Big Bash should sit at the intersection of sport and pop culture and what else sits at the intersection of sport and pop culture, music.
1: I, I sat in front of the stage while Baker Boy was performing at Marvel, yes. remember that night on a 42 degree yes. day? was uh, very the, hot at Marvel that day. The job that we were doing, but no, that that's an example of that. That was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah.
2: thank you. Yeah. You know, we've got Peking Duck this year, um, we've got Pinal, so there's a lot of big names and... I think our ambition is to drive a bigger relationship between sport and music and and really be on that consideration set. So when big global artists are coming to Australia or they're announcing their tour, we want them to go, actually, I can launch this at the Big Bash. Um, You know, we have a million people watching per night. We get a million people through the stadiums. We've got a really large platform. So we think we're a great opportunity for um, big, Global acts to come and launch their tours with us.
0: The Big Bash was four years old when you started. Mm. Have you got any memorable sort of key initiatives that you've been able to implement over that time that stand out for you?
2: Yeah. When I started with the Big Bash, we had 35 men's games over eight venues. Last year we delivered 120 matches over 27 venues over two competitions. Um, So for me, The implementation of the Women's Big Bash League is probably my greatest achievement Mm -hmm. Um, and being able to launch a league, grow a league, um, build a match day product that is slightly different to the men's competition as well. Um, You know, one of my highlights has been that we partnered with Bounce, a trampoline company, and we actually, it was a logistical nightmare, (sighs) but we um, took a trampoline set up around to all of our festival games and so... Yes, you can come and watch the best female cricketers in the world, but you can also jump off a, you know, six foot, eight foot high trampoline deck and land on a big bag. And for me, that's the epitome of Big Bash of the cricket's great. You can watch the cricket, but you can also go and have all of this fun. And, you know, I think there are a lot of organisations that would say, no to putting a trampoline centre at a tier two, tier three venue. 100%. We had six broken bones. <laughs> um, and, That'd know. be enough to <laughs>
0: turn most people off. Correct. I mean, you look at caravan parks at the moment, there's no jumping <laughs> delays anymore for exactly that reason. So Correct. you're doing it at a major event.
2: Um, but, you know, we've had that Willy Wonka mentality where yeah. we've been able to do things differently and, and have a bigger risk appetite. And, you know, we've put swimming pools into the Gabba. Um, we've put motorcycles on the field of play. We have light-up stumps, Um, you know, when we first implemented the Zing stumps, everyone was saying, you know, this isn't real cricket, you're ruining (laughs) cricket. Um, And now we've got a generation of fans that wouldn't know that yeah, wouldn't different. stump But You exist. need an
1: open mind and a creative Absolutely. mind at, at the top level to allow for that to happen. Yeah. Otherwise they're going to stand there and go, no, 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 we don't do this. Well, As it's, you say, it's
0: having those visionary leaders yeah. to your point earlier but that are open to yeah. to people coming to the table going, I've got this great idea, which sort of I guess leads my, my question into what's that process like for you in the conceptualization of those ideas, sort of the strategy, the approvals, the planning and then the execution and how long does that generally take?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, you need to be really clear with who you are. I think if you're really clear with your purpose and your strategy, and you've got a strong strategy, then the ideas that jump off that and the executions that jump off that are really clear. But if you're not sure who you are or your purpose, then you're going to have a lot of different conversations internally. So I think one of the best things about Big Bash is we've always been really clear on why we exist and who we are, which then means that we can write these other strategies of bringing more people to the game or, or, you know, putting on the best entertainment experience we can or surprising and delighting our fans. So internally for us, um, you know, we have a pretty short season. It's not like an AFL or an NRL we're more like a tournament and you've got to lock and load and deliver and then try again at the next season. So we'll be really clear with what our objectives are for that upcoming season, for the next 12 months. Is it
1: just for that season?
2: Just for that season. Yep. Yeah, yeah. okay. So we, we have an overarching strategy. Yeah. We know who we are, but then we'll sit down as a team and say, okay, the things we want to focus on this year, mm. and we'll start that process in sort of March, April. Um We then build out the ideas or we'll go and speak to agencies or we'll, you know, go and speak to partners or we'll create properties. You know, we don't have an unlimited budget, so we'll often pitch something to partners or or go and try and find money from other outlets. But we'll probably spend a month internally getting clear on, okay, what are the things we want to do? What could that look like? Everyone leads their functional area, whether it's event and ops, marketing, digital, etc. But then we come back together and we work on little project teams together. And then we kind of land, okay, well, this is what we want to try and focus on this year. And then we'll write a business case together and we'll put it up to, to the business throughout budget time. Some of those will get up. Some of those won't get up. Some of those that don't get up we love and we'll try and find other ways to get mm-hmm. them up. Um, the, and passion then, yeah, <laughs> the, the passion ones. It. Yeah, It's always yeah. the passion. It's always good money for good ideas yeah. is what I'd say. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we we go through that kind of formal process and then we hit, not going to lie, probably August um, and then new fresh ideas come up that yeah. are either bigger or different or That haven't gone through that formal process. And and to me, that's sometimes where the better ideas come as well, because you're like, we really need this. Um, And then again, we've been a really small, dynamic team. So we've been able to jump on things quickly. Um, And if it's a good enough idea, we can turn it around quickly. And I'll give you two examples. This year, you know, it was probably September where we decided we needed an app. I don't know if anyone's tried to build an elite app, but the business decided in September this year that we needed a big bash app and we launched it a week ago. So, you know, really big, complex projects that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars can move very quickly if you've got the right people on your side.
1: And the timeline as well, because there's no point bringing this out, say, in another couple of weeks or whatever. It's done. Correct.
2: Yep. So I think, yeah... When, when the business wants to, we can move really quickly and agilely and then there's a formal process that we go through that takes a bit more time uh, and effort. And I think you actually need both, right? Because you totally. need the flexibility to be able to jump on good ideas yep. or to move or to try different things. But equally you need a long-term process yep. that everybody's which on board with. Which comes back to
0: your your purpose first and foremost because yeah. if you can align to that, then you're halfway there. Right people, which you spoke about as well, you got those in the right place, you can actually be as agile as you want to be and when you need to be yep. to be able to adapt and not just in, you know, over three months but even in match day or when things go wrong. And so just by having that support network in, in – how you operate Uh, and if everybody's on the same page, which we speak about a lot, (laughs) that old team mentality, um, it it can work. How do you guys measure the impact of those new initiatives? I'm sure some have like probably gotten through and then fallen over and others that maybe you thought you were going to do and then you didn't end up doing. Uh, Again, sort of not so much process but, you know, how do you decide to persevere with an idea and then how do you decide to, okay, let's bin a concept?
2: Yeah, we're probably not great at binning concepts. Um, if we're going to do something, we're going to we'll do, do it and have a yeah. crack. <laughs> um, but for us, it's, yeah, being really clear when we set up a project or an initiative, what does success look like? Because yep. if we're measuring ourselves differently to what Nick Hockley's is measuring us on, mm. then we're never actually going to be successful. So being clear on what we're not and what we are and, and what this project is going to deliver is really important.
1: Because it wouldn't always be um, uh – Money would it? Correct. It would just be engagement,
2: resource, That's a good yeah, idea. You know, um, I'll give you an example of one that that didn't cost a lot of money, but we spent a lot of time talking about. In cricket events, you flip a coin, right? You toss a coin to work out who's batting or bowling first. And we sat in a room and said, actually, it's not really big bash. Is it? It's very test match cricket. Yep. What do you do in the backyard? I flip a bat.
1: I remember when you started doing that. And then
2: we're like, all right, should we flip a bat? And there were people, you know, Gideon Haig, who is a very traditional cricket uh, journalist, was telling us that, you know, we've got to give away this cartoon cricket, like this is ruining cricket And then people loved it and it's fun and it's Big Bash, right? So You must listen to 3AW.
1: That's true. Later we just listen to an event for life, that's for sure. But that's Ah. something that didn't cost a lot of money. But,
2: you know, we probably debated a little bit internally on should we do it, should we not do it, and we had a crack. And and we were a bit like, well, if it doesn't work, then we can always go back to a coin next year. But you've got to have this belief that you've got to dare to dream, right? You've got to have a crack. You can't be worried that everything's going to fail or that not everyone's going to love what you do. Like sometimes people talking about the big bash is better than everybody loving the idea that we've put on the table.
0: And some of the best ideas can be really simple and, to your point, not expensive but even just basic. Mm. But if they're relatable and people love them, just go with it. it. You don't need a – find another bank account or another sponsor necessarily to have a great idea. We,
2: we talk about this a lot with the bucket heads, right? Like yeah. the bucket heads are so synonymous with the big bash. And every year we sit down and we're like, should we do the bucket heads again? Obviously venues hate it. Um, they are fully biodegradable and recyclable. I was going to say, what's your yeah. sustainability plan <laughs> <Yeah>. for Fully, <laughs> that fully yeah. biodegradable. Um, but then if we reduce the amount of buckets, kids lose their mind when they come to match because – for them, getting your bucket, putting it on your head, is such a, a part of the big bash experience, and they want that when they turn up. So, yeah, making sure that we've got those um, experiences that aren't, you know, peeking duck or a big light mm-hmm. show yeah. that everybody can connect to, and we Be can involved. start to build legacies and build memories. Well, a ten year old
1: doesn't give a shit about peeking duck, but no. they, wanna they start, want to see that they want a bucket hat, and Thanks. they want to see them flip the bat, see who's who's Correct. batting or bowling yeah, first, because yeah. they can
0: then bring that back. To their backyard yeah. so, and do yeah. exactly the same thing as what they saw. So what other events or organisations do you look for inspiration and ideas uh, on how you can improve it personally but also from a work point of view?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, most of the major US sports, right, I think yeah. we all spend a lot of time watching that, talking off air about yeah. the Super Bowl earlier. Uh, R- <laughs> Rihanna on her stage, uh, yeah, you oh, know, yeah. that was incredible. I don't think I'm ever going to have the budget to do that with uh, Rihanna on <laughs> her stage but just seeing the scale and the ability of what they're able to do in the US. And well, we don't necessarily have the same market here or the same dollars or the same investment, it's how do you take that same philosophy or the same creativity and apply it to what we do here? So I'm a big fan of the NFL, what they're mm-hmm. doing with um, AI, what they're doing with mixed reality, um, you know, even, you know, Baseball over in the US, they have so many games and and their promotions and how they sell games and how they theme every game differently to make sure that they're driving attendance. To I think they have something like 180. Matches a year or something in the baseball. Yeah, yeah it's 160. It's well, it yeah. used to
1: be 166. It's just redi- they're double headers. Correct. It's if crazy. there's any uh,
0: baseball yeah. fans, American listeners out there, let us know what yeah. the <laughs> correct games are as of 2023. Yeah. But yeah. it's like
2: it's how do you you know their exact idea might not fit your event, but mm. what can you learn from the way that they position it or the creativity or how they got to where they landed and. You know, I'm a big believer in looking at what everybody else does and appreciating what everybody else does and then working out how that can work in your environment and what does that look like for you.
1: Now, speaking of spectacle, I don't know how involved you were in this, but can I take you back to March 2020, the T20 Women's World Cup. It was played in front of over 86,000 people at the MCG. Australia versus India, Australia won. You had Katy Perry performing. It was a beautiful day in Melbourne as well. It was International Women's Day, just, you know, amazing spectacle, something I still remember vividly and and what a great day for just Australian sport in general. You fast-forward a week and Melbourne was placed in a lockdown, which became the longest lockdown in the world. So... Tell us about that whole experience and the whirlwind that yeah, that was.
2: Well, just talking about the, the Women's World Cup, um, I was getting goosebumps just talking about it and remembering it. I wasn't uh, involved. I didn't work for the LOC, um, helped the team kind of early days get set up, but was a spectator uh, in the stadium. And I remember walking to the MCG that day and there was just something different in the air. It just had that major event, that moment in time feel about it. And I remember sitting in the seating bowl with some mates from CA and, you know, it's a bit different when you know some of the players and, you know, some of your work friends are actually working on the event or, you know, they're the media manager or the team manager on the team and it's such a big day for them. And I'd kind of lived through driving to fill the MCG and, and being part of it and how we set the WBBL up to try and be that launching pad into the Women's World Cup final I'd been around that expectation and, you know, that anxiety about, well, what if Australia don't make the final? What does that mean? And we all think this is going to be great if Australia make the final, but they lost a couple of games. And that kind of that stress and that the anxiety around to get to the MCG, it just had this sense of occasion and this moment. And I remember sitting in the seating bowl and um, I actually kind of teared up a bit thinking about, you know, I've played my very small role as part of this, and and to be a female, I'm probably choking up about it now. To be a female working in sport, and to see eighty six thousand people get behind the women's national team, and what that meant to Australia, and and what that meant to my industry and the people that I've worked with and I care about, and the things that I've worked on as well, it, it was. You know, I think a lot of people kind of got that with the Matildas this year and that Definitely. it was that moment and and that drive. And, you know, I think it was Alyssa Healy that hit that first four and I was like, we're on here. And and while it was probably one of the worst cricket games I've ever seen, very one-sided, it just it felt like it was our moment, our time, and that team who had been so successful and had driven so much investment into women's sport for such a long time they got their moment on home soil. And I think even from the Katy Perry performance, like we talk about scale earlier, she had that scale, she has that star power, she has that X factor and it was something we hadn't seen at the G before and that whole day just felt perfect and it just felt like this big sigh of relief that we're here, we've made it, it's no longer we're building to what female sport is. We're bloody here. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it just, yeah, I remember being really overwhelmed and I was in the change rooms post-game with the cup and the players and then on the field with Katy Perry and I was like, why would you work or do anything else? Yeah. This is brilliant. And then also I think I that's it. I
0: just think that's the brilliance of events, you know, and sporting events are more to the point. So, you know, it creates <laughs> those moments in time that we all remember as a culture and as a society, not yep. just physically been there, but just to your point, Buzz, it's like it's three years ago and you've got goosebumps thinking about that moment three years ago and your experience. What advice would you give to anyone listening that has a passion for sports and working in this sector of the industry?
2: Uh, Go and meet people. Um, Some of the best people I have ever met, some of my lifelong friends work in this industry, right? I think you guys have been around a long time. There are a lot of really good people who are willing to have a coffee with you and have a chat and building your networks is really important. So if you want to work in this industry, go and have a chat with someone, go and volunteer somewhere, go and get a little bit of experience, dip your toe in, see if it's for you. It's a hard industry. Mm -hmm. It's not for everybody. We're all a little bit crazy. Those (laughs) of us that work in the industry, right? Um, And you've got to have a little bit of that crazy in you to do what we do. When you get into the industry, you realise that the people in these high up roles are just like you and me and people that are having a crack and have built a career, but they're good people. Um, And if they can do it, you can do it. And don't be intimidated by people. Um, Go and have that coffee.
0: And what does 2024 look like for you?
2: 2024, I think, is going to be a bit of a change for me. So I have just resigned from Cricket Australia. So oh, there you go. Bombshell. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah,
1: you heard it here first. Um, don't we have like some sound effects on <laughs> that? <there>? Uh, <laughs> <some laughs> post-production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: but no, so I have just resigned from my role uh, after nine years and well, I've loved the Big Bash, Um, you know, being on the road a lot and, and doing the same thing for nine years, I think I'm just ready to hand the baton on to somebody else and, and let them shape the the next decade of the Big Bash, men's and women's. So for me, I'm probably looking at what that next role is for me, whether it's domestically here or overseas or back in government or back in venues. And yeah, I'm kind of interested to pop my head back up after almost a decade and see what roles are out there and and what I want to do next. I think what I've realised about myself is that I want to build and grow things. It's for me, it's less now about the individual sport or the individual event, but I want to build things and I'm really excited to see what opportunities there are, and what I can build next. What do you
1: reckon? I don't think she's going to have to look too far. <laughs> There'll be a few. Oh, uh, any tuss- jumps going
2: I any jobs going. I'm
0: Care for what you want to build there, so you <laughs> get too far. Well, was speaking of Buzz, and you might change your mind after this. It's uh, it's time for his uh, big rapid fire questions, and cool. uh, you look after 15 years of knowing you, Belle, This could go yeah, anywhere. This is so, concerning why we've yeah. got a
2: microphone here, buzzer. Are you ready now?
1: Hard hitting. Now no, these are good. Let's right, go. Quick answers. What sports did you play growing up? Gymnastics. Do you
2: play gymnastics? But I did gymnastics. You did. Yeah, that's yeah.
1: that's a great sport. Okay, so you're a passionate Geelong, nuffy. I've got yes. fan written here, but it's <laughs> yeah. nuffy. Oh. Uh, yeah, in the AFL. For those yep. who I don't know, um, they won uh, numerous grand finals over the years. But uh, in 2011, mm-hmm. they won the grand final. Uh, you were doing their post game. Yes, the the post game event. What's your fondest memory of that experience?
2: Uh, As a
1: fan and someone working on the event?
2: Yeah, we were slightly over capacity and Joel Selwood came up and asked if his cousins and his friends could come in and uh, addressed me by name because he was told no, like the venue has said no, and he sought me out and he came and asked me and said, Belinda, do you mind if these people came in? And I was like, Joel Selwood, of course, come on.
1: <laughs> <in."> <laughs> there you go. Very See it's who you know, not what you know. <laughs> Uh, is everyone listening to that, by the way? Yeah. Just look at the name tag yeah. of the person and yeah, address, them by, address name. Them by name. Yep. And get Joel yeah, to ask correct. her. Uh, what is your bucket list international event that you would like to work on?
2: I'd love to do a Super Bowl. Um, and when I say Super Bowl, probably the halftime entertainment more so than the sporting event side of things. But I think that is absolutely the pinnacle of what we do and... You know, just the production side of things, mm. the scale, the broadcast, the level of artist, the investment, I just, yeah, that's absolutely on top of my bucket list.
1: Have you ever flashed the Cricket Australia badge to get into something?
2: <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Probably not. Um, not that I can think of off the top of my head.
1: Well, that you just, just did not want to divulge. Yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, on the ground with Katy Perry
0: at the World Cup, so there you go.
1: I knew enough <laughs>
2: people around I didn't have to <laughs> flash a badge.
1: Yeah, that's good. I would have done the same. <laughs> Um, Sunday Arvo, barbecue at your place, who do you invite over?
2: Uh, as in anyone? Anyone. Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, Michelle Obama, I would love to meet Michelle Obama and, and have a chat with her. I'd love to meet Roger Federer and have a chat to him. Uh, I think my granddad, uh, I'd like, just love having him over to awesome. the barbecue. Um, yeah,
1: Would he chew the ears off Roger Federer if he was there?
2: Absolutely. Excellent.
1: Yeah. Um, And did you ever meet the late, great Shane Warne?
2: I did. I um I met Shane Warne several times. Uh, obviously he was playing in the Big Bash and then and commentating. Um I do have a great Shane Warne story that's not mine that I can tell you if you've got time. Go for it. Uh, it's Warney. Yeah, it's yeah. uh, yeah. time. Uh, 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 the lovely Tony Ross who used to be the CA security manager um who's a great guy. Um Warney was at the SCG one day smoking a couple of darts in in the hallway and obviously the the fire alarm went off and the venue called him and um, T Ross went over to sort it out and tapped Warney on the shoulder and said, Hey, mate, like you can't smoke here. He's like, Yeah, no worries, mate. Went away. Happened again about twenty minutes later. T Ross goes over, taps him on the shoulder, and says, "Hey, mate, you can't smoke." He's like, "No, nah, no, nah, it's fine." The CA security manager has uh, told me it's fine. And <laughs> T Ross went, oh, buddy, that's it's me." The me. <laughs> yeah. Warnie went, "Oh, fuck!" and put his cigarette out. And uh, one of the great warning stories. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's one awesome. of millions,
1: and yeah, that's uh, that's Warnie, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, to finish each episode uh, of an event for life this season, uh, we've started a bit of a tradition whereby we've asked the previous guest to leave the next guest a question without knowing who they are. So today's question for you, Great. what is the most important lesson you have learned from events over your career?
2: It's the most important lesson I've learned from events. Um, I think the most important lesson is to be prepared. Um, so whatever I do in life, I make sure that I've done the work before I get there and make sure that I go with some level of preparation, whether it's a job interview, whether it's, you know, a particular project. But if you care about something, you prepare for it. And so I like to think I go into everything other than this interview, pretty (laughs) prepared, um, and, and at least having a think about it before I get there.
0: I don't know what to come into this interview, but I think that's, uh, yeah, an amazing testament to your work ethic, Belle. Um, you know, you've certainly... Carved a path for yourself, but it's it's down to hard work, grit, determination, um, and just consistently doing what you do to the best of your ability. Um, so, thank you very much and, for and for your backing time. yourself, which yeah, you always have. One hundred percent. Thank so, you.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. Um,
0: we've loved to see your your journey, and as much as you know, our paths have sort of you know not necessarily been a hundred percent next to each other the whole way. To see where you were to where you are now, and uh, and to see where you've been able to prosper is absolutely incredible. And so, congratulations on everything you've achieved so far. We look forward to seeing what comes in 2024 and the next opportunity. And uh, yeah, we wish you all the very best.
2: Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. I've loved it.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Belle. And have a great Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of An Eventful Life. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss an episode. It makes a huge difference to us. And don't forget you can also find us on our new YouTube channel.
0: This show is for you, our listeners. Our aim is to bring you the most in-depth conversations and life experiences from the event industry. So if you have any feedback, suggestions on guests you would like us to interview on the show, please reach out to us through our social media channels. I'm Brad. And I'm Shane. See you next time on An Event for Life.